Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 5. We're beginning at verse 17 today. And we're going to read through uh, the greater part of this section. But before we do that, just keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 5. I want to sort of set the stage a little bit for what Jesus is about to talk about. So keep your finger in Matthew 5. And if you would turn to John chapter 5. which is a familiar story, but one that helps us to understand why Jesus is about to say what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I want you to notice Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus spent the greater part, and you're going to hear this in the sermon this morning, in the greater part of his life and ministry, really in the northern region of Israel, what is known as Galilee. But he would frequently go up to Jerusalem for the festivals. Now, if you know the geography of the Holy Land, you know that actually it's south. Jerusalem is south of Galilee. But Jerusalem was built on a hill, and it has symbolic significance for the Jews. It was always, in their minds, the highest place on earth. So it didn't matter if you were going south or east or west, you always went up to Jerusalem. So the point is that Jesus was not in Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem the Sheep Gate, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful. That's the critical phrase. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Uh, in John's Gospel, uh, whenever it says the Jews, it is almost invariably referring to the Jewish religious leaders, not to the Jewish people in general, but to the Jewish religious leaders in particular. So when it says the Jews were persecuting him, what it really means is the Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Jesus. And why was it? Because he had healed on the Sabbath, and because in their mind that was a what? A violation of the law. 
Jesus was constantly being persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, because they accused him of breaking the law, the law of Moses. Well, now, flip back to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. What does Jesus say? Well, it's obvious part of what he is saying here is aimed at the Pharisees because they were accusing him of being an enemy of the law. They were basically saying to the people, you can't trust this Jesus. He may be a worker of signs and wonders, to be sure, but he does not uphold the law of Moses. He is no friend of the law. And that's why Jesus says what he does in the verses that we have this morning that we're going to take a look at. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus replies, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus raises the whole question of what is the place of the law in the life of the believer? Now, most of us know, I hope, that we are saved not by what we do. We are saved, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, by grace. That is God's undeserved, unearned favor, which is received how? By faith. You were saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. It is a gift from God, freely given. And yet Jesus makes it very clear here that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what place does the law have in the life of the Christian? If Jesus says he has not come to abolish it, and whoever fails to teach the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, what does it mean for the law to have a place in the life of the Christian? Well, that's what we're going to take a look at today. First thing Jesus makes very clear is that he did not come to abolish the law. He said he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. I'm sorry, the part of that is off the screen. Um, I don't think... You can't read it anyway? Well, in the process of this, you may be healed, so you, it may be possible that you once were blind, but now you'll see. Uh, at any rate, Jesus makes it very clear. I'll remember next time to make it bigger. Um, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The Lord here in these verses says four things about the law in terms of how it relates to a citizen of the kingdom of God. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount is really about that. It's about what it means to be a citizen, what, what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. We have to keep reminding ourselves this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive. So this is a description of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it very clear. For a citizen of the kingdom of God, the law remains valid. The law has a place. There are some Christians, I call them hyper-Lutheran, who insist that the law has no place in the life of the Christian anymore. Because we are under grace, there's no emphasis or no need for the law. Martin Luther, I think, got this wrong in the early days of his ministry. Uh, he never liked, for example, the epistle of James and actually referred to James because it talked about 
works and about showing your faith by your works and that faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther at one point said, the epistle of James is a right strawy epistle. It's the epistle of straw. And, and he pretty much discarded it. Now, I think toward the end of his life, he came back around and realized that it was nevertheless, whether he liked it or not, the inspired word of God, and he had to deal with it. But in those early days, he didn't like it. Why? Because for so much of his life, he had tried to earn God's favor. He had tried to work himself into the favor of the Lord, and everything he tried never worked. He always was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame. And then he read those wonderful words in Romans chapter 1, the just, that is, those who are justified, shall live how? By faith. And that was just a watershed event for him. It changed everything for Martin Luther. And so he was very frightened by anything that had to do with the law. And I think there are many Christians like that today. They say if you're saved by grace, and it is by grace, and there's no place for the law whatsoever. But you have to wrestle with what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. The law does have a place. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The law remains valid. How does the law remain valid? Well, Jesus would say the first thing that the law does is it teaches us the character of God. I pointed out to you, I think it was two weeks ago, we weren't here last week, but two weeks ago, that of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, and there are lots of them, there's the adjective loving, merciful, but of all the adjectives that are used, which we said, which one is used more than any other? Holy. God is described over and over again as the Holy One. Now, when I say God is the Holy One, I don't mean that God is simply good. I think when we think of holiness, that's what we think of. We, we tend to think of a sliding scale. I think I've showed you this before. And we tend to think that God's up here on the top and the devil's down here on the bottom and everybody else sort of falls somewhere on that scale. But when the scripture talks about God being the Holy One, it means that God is not even on the scale. He's in a class all to his own. He is holy, H-O-L-Y. He is also W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. Holy other. And what the law does is it shows us that an aspect of God's holiness is his righteousness. This is what it means to be right with God. That's what the law shows us, the right standard, what a citizen of the kingdom should look like. And so Jesus says the law is important for that reason. It expresses to us the character of God, his holiness. The law also expresses God's intention for man. How are we supposed to live? Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. So it is God's intention that we understand who he is, what his standard is. It is also God's intention that we should live like him. Well, we won't know what it is to live unless what? The standard is given to us. You know, you know how this works with children. You can't expect children to have table manners if it's never what? Taught to them. That's why we send our children to Miss M. And, and she straightens them out, thanks be to God. But we can't expect, can we? We cannot expect children to understand unless the standard is set and laid down. Well, that's what the law does. The law tells us what God wants, what God desires, who God is. That's what the law does. And Jesus is saying, for that reason, the law is valid. The law is important. The law also reveals the character of salvation, the true means of salvation. 
We're going to see later on in the same gospel, Jesus is going to tell the people that they need to be holy as their Father in heaven is holy. If you want to know how good you have to be, Jesus is very clear. You've got to be as good as your Father in heaven. In this respect, the law functions like a mirror. You know what a mirror does? A mirror can show you that your face is dirty, but it cannot clean it. The only thing a mirror can do is drive you to the soap and water. That's what the law of God does. It functions as a mirror. It reveals who we really are. It reveals the high standard, and it reveals the fact that we have failed to meet it. So many people think that the purpose of the law is to keep people from sinning. How many of you thought that was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? To keep you from sinning. Well, how's that going for you? The purpose of the law, according to the Apostle Paul, is not to keep us from sinning. It is to reveal the fact that we do. Think about Moses getting the Ten Commandments. Think about him going up there on Mount Sinai and receiving those tablets from the Lord. The first commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God and have no other gods before me. Right? That's the first commandment. Here's the problem with the first commandment. If you break the first, you break all the rest by consequence. So aim for the first. So Moses comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the good news for the people of Israel so they won't sin. And what does he find them doing when he gets down off the mountain? They've worshipped the golden calf. And Moses gets down there and he says, what are you doing? And they said, well, we just took off our jewelry and threw it in the pot and out came this calf. And that, that's basically the way they put it. It's, you know, the dog ate my homework sort of thing. And, you know, Moses hasn't even given them the law, and they've already what? Broken it. So giving them the law, is it going to prevent them from sinning? The only thing it's going to do is reveal their sin. So what did Moses do? He threw the tablets down and he broke them because it was symbolic of the fact that they had already broken it. Man, if you've had children, you know how this works. I've had four, and I know how this works. Normally, when I have to say to my, you know, my son, thou shalt not trip thy, thy sister, or thou shalt not pinch thy brother, I'm not telling them that so that they won't do it. I'm telling them that because they already have. Did you ever notice that? We put the law in after they have already violated it. So the law is important to not only reveal the high standard that God has and to reveal the fact that we are to live up to that high standard, but it also reveals the fact that you and I haven't. We have broken it. And therefore, what does it do? It drives us to the soap and water, doesn't it? It drives us to the only true means of our salvation, which is Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come to fulfill them, this is part of what he means. This is why the law is important for the Christian life. He also goes on to say that he himself fulfills the law. Look at verse 13, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
This is the second thing that Jesus says about the law. He says the law remains valid. He is also the fulfillment of that law. How is he the fulfillment of the law? Well, Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of the law in his teaching. That's what he was dealing with there in John. He was trying to teach the people about what it really means to fulfill the law. He ran afoul of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the scribes because why? Because he ran afoul of their interpretation of the law, not of the law itself. What Jesus is saying is that he is going to tell them the true meaning of the law. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 5 and flip ahead a little bit to Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That is, they have a place of authority in the life of the people. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. The Pharisees loved the law. They felt that the law was the means by which a person earned God's favor. And they not only had the Ten Commandments, but they had a whole series of laws and regulations that expanded, that explained the Ten Commandments, commentary, if you will, on the Ten Commandments. So when the Ten Commandments say, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy, that meant you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Well, sometimes that became difficult. So the Pharisees came up with all of these rules and regulations about the Sabbath. And Jesus described this as tying up heavy burdens. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what the Pharisees would do. According to the Pharisees, it was unlawful to do any work on the Sabbath day. So let's say you had a handkerchief in your upstairs room, and you wanted to take it down and put it in a drawer in the downstairs room. You could not pick that handkerchief up, carry it down the stairs, and put it in the bureau. Why? Because that was work. However, you could take that handkerchief and tie it around your neck as as an article of clothing and walk down the stairs to the bureau, take it off, and put it in. And that was not work. Here's another one. You were not allowed to plow on the Sabbath. Why? Because that was work. But even spitting on the ground could be work. If you spit on the ground and it made a furrow in the dust, that was considered plowing. And that was a violation of the law. Now, this sounds ridiculous, but this is exactly how they looked at it. But if you spit upon a rock and it didn't make a furrow in the ground, that was not plowing and you were excused. You were not allowed to go more than a Sabbath day's journey. In fact, you find that in the New Testament, that expression quite frequently, a Sabbath day's journey. You were not permitted to go more than a Sabbath day's journey beyond your hometown. Okay, and there was a, there was a whole allotted amount of space that you could go well let's say that your house is at this end of the street that person down there at the other end of the street can actually go further on the sabbath than you can go so what did the pharisees do at the end of friday they would take a rope and attach it to the house at this end of the street and to the house at that end of the street 
And that meant it was all one dwelling place. Now you see what they were doing. Jesus is saying they were tying up heavy burdens too great for people to carry. They were trying to earn their way into heaven. And what Jesus is coming is he's saying, I'm coming to show you what the law is really about. Not just the letter of the law, but rather the spirit of the law. Third thing Jesus does is he fulfills the law in his deeds and in his lifestyle. Take a look at Luke chapter 14 for just a moment. We're going to skip around a little bit at the beginning here. Luke chapter 14, here's the question again. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to reveal to, to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son, or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus is saying it's not just the letter of the law, but it is the spirit of the law. And what he does is by his life, by his actions, Jesus reveals what the law is really all about. What God desires. Not sacrifice, but rather a broken and contrite heart. So Jesus fulfills uh, the law in his deeds and in his lifestyle. He fulfills the law by his death. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Take a look at 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, let me encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you really want to know what the Christian gospel is in one verse of the Bible, this is it. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's how St. Augustine put it. The Son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. That is what Jesus Christ has done. And in so doing, he has created a new Israel. He has fulfilled the law by his death. All of the requirements of the law, everything that was necessary... What did God say to Adam? If you eat of the tree, if you even touch the tree, what's going to happen to you? You will surely die. Did they eat of the tree? Yes. If God is going to be righteous and holy and true to himself, what has to happen to them? They have to die. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. So we've all sinned. We all deserve death as a result of what Adam has done. We are all in Adam. 
promise is that there is a new Adam that has arrived on the scene, Jesus Christ. And he takes the just punishment that we all deserve upon himself so that the, the law is satisfied. There's a great passage. We, we say it in the comfortable words every Sunday. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. You hear those words? You know what the word propitiate means? Back in the 1940s, when they came out with the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, there was a debate among scholars as to whether or not we should use the word expiate or propitiate. Expiate means to cover. And they said Jesus by his death covered our sins, which is true. But actually, the Greek word is a word translated propitiate. It means to turn away wrath. When we think about wrath, we tend to think about what? Anger. We tend to think about somebody who gets frustrated and loses their temper and flies off the handle. But that's not the biblical idea of wrath at all. The biblical idea of the wrath of God, which you don't hear much about in churches today, is an aspect of God's holiness. God cannot tolerate sin. Uh, when we had um, our second child, we discovered early on that he was allergic to eggs. And uh, all we had to do was touch his lips with eggs, and he immediately broke out in hives. I mean, it was sort of a violent reaction. Some people have that kind of reaction to shellfish, for example, uh, and it can be very violent. But we tried everything. We tried egg beaters. We tried, you know, without the yolk. We tried didn't matter. When we put eggs to his lips, he just automatically broke out in hives. Well, God cannot tolerate sin. There's a powerful illustration of this in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for the people. But before he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to sacrifice for himself so that he went in with clean hands and a clean heart. And do you know what else the high priest did when he went into the Holy of Holies? He went in with a rope tied around his ankle. Because if he went into the presence of God and did not have a pure heart, he would be struck down. The wrath of God would consume him. And nobody else could go in to get him. So they had to reel him out like a great fish. That was the holiness of God. Now, it wasn't as though God was flying off the handle. The wrath of God is more akin to an allergic reaction. God simply cannot tolerate sin. Whenever he comes into contact with it, his holiness consumes it. And what Paul is telling us here in 2 Corinthians is that Jesus Christ took all of that sin upon himself and God's wrath consumed him there on the cross. That we might, what? Go free. That's why the New Testament says he is the propitiation for our sins. He turns aside God's wrath and takes it upon himself. That's the glorious message of the gospel. The punishment has already been meted out. The punishment that you and I deserve has already been meted out on Jesus Christ. He fulfills all the law's demands and turns aside God's wrath and his judgment. He fulfills the law by his death. Jesus also fulfills the law in his disciples. Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Old Testament says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He's writing God's Word in the hearts of His disciples. And that's why we're here today to study this Word, so that God might write it on our hearts. This is what Jesus means when He says, I've not come to destroy the law. The law is a good thing. But you need to understand its function in the life of the Christian. If you want to be saved by the law, if you want to be saved by your good works, here's the question you've got to ask yourself. How good must you be? That's what Jesus was asking those Pharisees and those scribes. How good do you really have to be? See, most of us view our lives like a ledger. That's a ledger book up there. And you have two sides of the ledger book, don't you? On the left side, you have the assets. And on the right side, you have the what? The liabilities. Now, if you want to be solvent, you want to make sure that you have more what? Assets than liabilities. And so many of us, when we look at our own spiritual lives, that's what we think. God's going to grade on the curve. So the important thing is to have more in the asset column than I have in the liability column. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I've been confirmed. My mother went to church. My grandmother went to church. I'm a member of St. Philip's. And we think if we have more in the asset column than we have in the liability column, then off to heaven we will go. Isn't that what we think? The question is, how good do we really have to be? That was a question that Paul wrestled with his entire life until the moment of his conversion. Take a look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. It's a great passage. Paul is describing his own life, a little bit of autobiographical material in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, the second part of verse 4. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is, in his achievements, I have more. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Translate, I am part of the chosen race, God's special people. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, there were 12 tribes. All of them were unfaithful except for Benjamin at one point. So I am not only one of the chosen race, I am of the faithful tribe. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, pure-blooded. My mother is a Hebrew. My father was a Hebrew. We are not from off. As to the law, I was a what? A Pharisee. I'd been to seminary. I'd been ordained, Paul is saying. As to zeal, passion for the things of God, I was a persecutor of the church. Those are all of my assets. Those are all of the things that I've done, all of the things that I have accomplished. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I never spat on the ground and made a furrow. I was blameless before the law. But then he says, but, this wonderful word, but, verse 7, for whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, actually, that is a sanitized translation. The real Greek there would be translated as dung. 
I considered all of these things that I once thought were important, of value, that would earn God's favor. He said, I now realize that they are dung compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. What Paul did at the moment of his conversion was he took that ledger book and he tore out the left-hand column. And over the right-hand side, he wrote the word, Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful story about this. It goes back to the days of Tsar Nicholas. The story goes that um, during the days of the imperial uh, rule in Russia, there was a young officer whose father was a nobleman, and he gained a commission in the Russian army, but he'd been a bit of a playboy. He had not really done much with his life. He got this commission because his father was a friend, a dear friend of the Tsar's. And he got this commission, and he was put in charge of uh, the post's finances at this military post. But he had a gambling problem. And he basically began to, because of his debts mounting up, um, playboy, he sort of dipped into the regiment's accounts. And he began to use all of this money. And before long, he realized that he had pretty much bankrupted the entire regiment. Payroll, everything. And then he got word that the czar was coming for an inspection tour. And he was terrified. He didn't know what to do. So the first thing he did is he sat down and got all the accounts out and he began to tally up. And he realized it was an enormous sum, much greater than anything he had even imagined. And he didn't know what to do. He knew he was going to shame his family. He was going to shame the czar. He was going to shame the regiment. He didn't know what to do. So he decided the only thing he could do was to take his own life. He pulled out his service result revolver and was about to take his life, but realized that in addition to everything else, he was also a coward. And he needed a little bit of liquid courage. And so he fortified himself. He started drinking. Started drinking. Kept going back over the books, going back over the books. He decided to write out a suicide note, put it there on top of the ledger book, it simply had these words, a great debt, who can pay? And then took a few more drinks and passed out. When he woke up, hours later, he grabbed for his service revolver, realizing that the czar was going to be there at any moment, and as he did, he noticed two sacks sitting there on the ledger book. And he looked down, and under his words, a great debt, who can pay, was the name Nicholas. The czar had come in the middle of the night, realized what had happened, knew the young man's reputation, but out of compassion for the family, had paid the debt himself. Jesus Christ paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. How good do you really have to be? That's the question, folks. How good do you really have to be? Well, Jesus said, if you want to save yourself, you've got to be better than the Pharisees. Now you say, well, no problem there. Well, actually, the Pharisees, as I said, had an extreme righteousness. They followed the law to the letter and beyond. Their problem was that they wore a mask. 
They were hypocrites. The Greek word is hypocritos, from which we get hypocrite. It means to wear a mask. They were wearing a mask, looking good and polished on the outside, but on the inside, something was rotten to the core. Many people's lives are like that. And Jesus said, if you want to earn your way into heaven, if you want to know how good you have to be, you've got to be better than what you look like on the outside. How good are we when we take a good hard look at ourselves on the inside? We've got to be better than we think. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. That's what Jesus is talking about in the rest of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So go back to Matthew chapter 5, and let's take a look at what he goes on to say. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that look like, somebody might ask. Jesus said, I'll tell you. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, you want to know how good you have to be? It's not a matter of just not having committed murder. You can commit murder in your heart. Anybody ever committed murder in their heart? One way to describe it is character assassination. We'll come back and look at these in greater detail next week. Jesus goes on to say, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, fellas, moment of honesty. How many adulterers do we have out there? I mean, I walked up King Street past Victoria's Secret yesterday. <laughs> I remember saying this to my, to my son one time. We were out. He's a teenager, and he, we were just taking him, dropped him off at college, and there were all these beautiful young girls floating around, and I leaned over to him, and I said, Son, remember what the Scripture says. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. He said, I'll risk one eye, Dad. And an occasion when Kristen was nine months pregnant, she knew this was coming. Uh, she was nine months pregnant with our first child, and we were in the mall, North Charleston. This was 20-some years ago in, the, in some sort of baby store up there, and we were shopping around. And this, this is the honest truth. She was a little sensitive, you know, being an expectant mother and all of that and being larger than usual and a, a brand-new mother. And um, we're in this store, and this attractive woman walked in front of me. I really was not looking. That's the, I'm not going to say and tell you I've never looked, but I'm just telling you I wasn't looking on that occasion. But Kristen turned over to me and she said, remember what the Bible says. And I said, well, what does the Bible say? And she said, if your eye offends me, I will pluck it out. wasn't really in my translation of the Bible, but I was not about to dispute it with her. 
How many of us have committed adultery? And this is not just a man thing. It's a female thing as well. And Jesus goes on and he talks about all of these things. And we'll take a look at them in closer detail next week. But you can see if you want to be good, the question is how good? Could we ever be good enough? Jesus is saying that's the whole point. The purpose of the law is to reveal what you really are. It is a mirror. It shows you that your life is broken. It is fallen. But it can drive you to this open water. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. That's the gospel. And for it we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that your Son Jesus Christ came into this world not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfills it by His words and by His deeds. He fulfills it by His death. He fulfills it by writing it on the hearts of His disciples. Lord, it reveals our brokenness, our fallenness. Grant that we might read in the law our own sinfulness and flee to Jesus, finding in Him one who is mighty to save. And then when Your Holy Spirit comes in and begins that process of renovation, begins to make us into new men, new women, write your law on our hearts that we may be a holy people, even as you are holy. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.